and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. If you're enjoying the second chapter, remember to leave us a rating or review. It helps others to find us and then they can enjoy it too. Welcome to the season three finale of the second chapter. Today, I'm joined by Taiwo Deo Payne. After speaking with Taiwo, I knew her story had to end season three. Taiwo started out as an actor, but in a rare twist, found success to be less than she hoped, and accidentally discovered her next steps through volunteering. Her latest chapter, The New 50, finds her working with people approaching or in their middle years. She is helping them reconnect with their own passions and create their desired lifestyle for the next chapter in their lives. Taiwo's message is exciting, inspiring, and rejuvenating. I just wanted to be in a position to support people. Again, a lot of the people that I was working with and I was talking with were had grown up in with a kind of mindset of this is who you are and this is who you'll be until you retire and then after that you can be whatever you like and then you die. And I think that a lot of these people are coming to a point in their life where they're thinking, actually, no, that doesn't define me, but I'm not sure what does. Hi, Taiwo. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited about this. Yes, so am I. You're such a great combination of various things to be a guest on this show because you've had a lot of career changes in your life. You are working with women to evolve past 50. And yeah, I think this is going to be a great conversation. So yay. (laughs) Good, I hope so. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) So first of all, I do know you had a lot of transformations in your own career and that you started in acting. You were an actor for about 10 years? I was an actor for about 10 years, yes. I really loved it, actually. I really enjoyed it, yeah. Yeah. And was it something that you felt like you always wanted to do? You just knew you were going to be an actor, or was it something that... No, it was strange, um, because I was born and I grew up here, and in primary school, I was very involved in music more than anything. My teachers recognised that I had a musical ear, so they encouraged me with the recorder and, and encouraged me to join the choir and things like that. I did ballet as a child at the weekends. And so I was, I, I was in that performing space, but I was very clever and I was more on the science end of things. So when I, I, as I went to secondary school and completed my secondary education in Nigeria, actually, and went down the science route. So I did my O-levels in math. Well, we, have to, we all have to do maths, but maths, physics, chemistry, biology. I thought at that point I was going to be a doctor. And I remember spending okay, my time... Okay, that's a big around. change. <laughs> yes, it was a massive change. I was going around popping people zits in my, as I, yeah, and cleaning them with Dettol and gentian violet and stuff like that as I prepared to be a doctor. So I came back um, and did my, what we call the A-levels. And again, I was still on that track for medicine. And then my, but my grades were not good enough for me to do medicine. So I was looking at pharmacology or biochemistry, and those are the things that I was applying for. And then I went for one interview at, I think it was Bath University. And I remember one of the people interviewing me, asking me why I was going for biochemistry when I seemed to be so into drama. I didn't realise that I had chosen the universities that had strong drama societies and things like that. And I just hadn't really made that connection because that wasn't something that my family 
would be encouraging me to do. I was going to university to become, if I couldn't become a doctor, then a biochemist or a pharmacologist or something like that. Definitely not going to drama school. And yeah, yeah. And but I, it was, it really felt like a very strong calling. I was being woken up. I was waking up in the middle of the night, thinking of myself, dreaming of myself on on stage. But I still continued on that route, obviously because the the sciences weren't my passion and drama was my passion. My grades weren't great either. And also at the same time, in that period, I realised that I was rather squeamish and not quite sure how I was going to reconcile that with sticking <laughs> needles in rabbit's heads and things like that so um, so but I was still continuing on that road and my mum and my stepfather came over on holiday my mum went ahead went back um, ahead of my stepfather and there was a program called come dancing at the time where it was all ballroom and my stepfather and I were sat there watching and I was like if I had a choice that is what I would do. I would want to be a dancer. So what does that mean if you had a choice? Yeah, if I had a choice. And he said, of course you've got a choice. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, um, I couldn't. My mum won't let me. And he was like, of course you've got a choice. Don't worry about your mum. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to go to drama school. And so he said, OK, I'll sort out your, I'll sort your mum out. And he did. But by the time I'd made that decision, it was too <laughs> late for me to go to drama school that year. And so I found a drama school in Guildford that I could start a year later. But that whole year, different members of my family were trying to steer me. Someone, one aunt came over and traipsed me around London trying to see if she could get me in a secretarial course or something. My uncle, who I'd lived with when I was in Nigeria, (laughs) he was like, why do you want to be an actor? Because he was big in the insurance industry. So he was like, I should do insurance. And he phoned some guy in some big insurance company here. One day I, I got this phone call from this guy on this insurance company and said, that, oh, your uncle phoned and said, he called me, he said, do you want to do insurance? And I was like, can I call you back? And I think he's still waiting for that call. Because I didn't call him back. I called my mum. I called my mum and I was like, oh, I don't want to do insurance. He's trying to make me do insurance. And she's like, why are you crying? Just tell him you don't want to do insurance. And so um, I wrote him a letter saying, thank you so much for the offer, uncle, but I don't want to do insurance. We never spoke of it again. But it was just strange because once I got into drama school, my whole family embraced it I think that it helps them to understand why I might have been a little bit odd because I I just got away with all sorts she's an artist she's an artist and so that was great but yeah so I went to drama school and I remember at about 24 25 I was having a conversation with the musical director on this children's show that I was working on and he said to me what are you going to be doing in 10 years time? I'm like, what do you mean? What am I going to be doing in 10 years? I'm going to be acting, of course. And of course I wasn't. 10 years later, I was doing an MBA. But I really, I was there. I thought that that was what I I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. And I was enjoying it. I I got a lot of work. I was always working, which was what got me out of it because I was working a lot outside of London. I was working on a lot of new plays. So I created characters, which was amazing. And what was really great about that experience was that I worked with directors, writers and musical directors that that really valued my contribution. So I helped to shape characters. I had a little bit of input in the music sometimes. And it just felt like it was that it was something that was partly mine and everyone on the cast 
was a team and we were all working to the same goal, so to speak. So that was great. But my life in London was getting a bit fragmented. Uh, my friends never knew whether I was around or not. So when I was home, mm. it was difficult to connect with people because they were living their lives. And I was home. It's like no one's sitting there waiting for me to come home. <laughs> also, when you're working away from home and you're away from home three, four, five months at a time, you're working with people that you wouldn't necessarily be spending time with outside of and acting is the only that kind of is the only experience you don't go into you're working in the bank and you go home and you socialize with those people because they're the only people that you go back to your own home a lot of the time I made friends and things but sometimes there were there were companies a little bit difficult a little bit cliquey and it wasn't the most comfortable and also when you're acting and you're creating a, a character you need to come home to yourself and remember who yes. you are that's what I needed my friends who knew me from way back when to be able to do for me, to be able to go, well, okay, this is who you are. Um, and the more I was working away, the harder that was becoming. And so I decided that I was just going to hold out for work in London. That's what I was going to do. I was going to hold out for work in London so that I didn't take the first job that came along out of boredom. I decided that I would go and volunteer at my local mind, a mental health care at the mm -hmm. drop-in centre. And I don't know, just something happened there and it just felt it just felt more meaningful. And there was there I was in this new setting, this new context where we were dealing with people's lives. We were um, helping people to stay out of hospital. And I I was then offered a part-time job and they loved the fact that I was an actor. So they were really open to me going off and doing little bits of TV work and doing bits of radio or training videos and things like that. But then I just got more and more into the mental health stuff and started thinking about how I could merge the mental health and the drama, which was when I went off and did a drama therapy diploma. It's so interesting to me because it's so rare that I hear an actor saying, I started getting out of it because I almost had too much work, as in you didn't get to be home, you didn't get to. Yeah. And then to find something just to fill the time between jobs that became so important. Mm. And went back to where you started without the squeamish part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there was that heat. There was something because even now when I think about it and I think about me waking up in the night and I remember somebody lent me a double cassette of Frank Sinatra's greatest hits. And I would play that as I was lying there thinking, I don't want to do what it is that I'm thinking that I want to do. And I want to be on a stage. I want to be on a stage. And now looking back on it, I'm not on a stage performing other people's work, but I'm out there talking to people, helping people, training. And I wonder whether that's what I saw. There was a part of me that knew that I wanted to do something that was connected with healing. And then there was a part of me that knew that I needed to do it on a big stage. But my frame of reference did not put the two together. And I assumed it was about going out and being a performer. I do perform because I sing in pub public at church mainly. But I do sing and I, I like <laughs> I like that aspect of it. But I feel like maybe I was being led to where I am now, actually, because even when I was acting, one of the things that I had, I had a very strong sense that I didn't want to be at the mercy of other people in terms of how I worked, what I did. I had worked enough that people started asking for me where I wouldn't necessarily have to 
audition, but it still came through. Somebody still had to ask for me. And running alongside my life choices, when I was living in Nigeria, I decided that I was going to become Nigeria's answer to Andrew Lloyd Webber. And oh. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. And and I, at the time, he'd done Jesus Christ Superstar and Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. So I was going to do the musical version of David and Bathsheba. Okay. And I wrote a couple of songs and whatever. And as I was growing and into adulthood, that became more just writing songs. And so in my 20s, I was writing my man done me wrong type songs and I'm 20 and I'm full of angst type songs but within all of that there was always this um sense that I I wanted to do a one-woman show because there was a part of me that was saying I don't want to be at the mercy of other people I want to start producing my own stuff but I didn't have the confidence to do it I would say definitely just acting myself and other actors I know one of the most one of the biggest challenges is not having control over what you do. I mean, you don't know where the next work's coming from and you do have to rely on an agent or you do have to rely on who wants to give you a job. Whereas yeah. if you want to forge your own path, that's really difficult. You mentioned drama therapy though, was the next thing. And I don't want to say I'm just becoming aware of drama therapy, but it definitely wasn't something I was so aware of till fairly recently. And I love the idea of this kind of mix of healing people through what we do in drama. So I don't know if everybody listening will know about drama therapy, if you don't mind telling us about what you did with that and how that worked. Sure, sure. So when I went, when I started working in mental health immediately, because I was, I'd, I'd come from a drama background, they suddenly said, we've got this women's group, go in and work with these women and do some exercises with them and do meditations with them. And so we had this book with gu- guided visualizations and, and there was a cassette recorder and I do a little bit because a lot of them were not in shape and so and I wasn't necessarily in shape either and I would do a little gentle exercise with them and then I would do meditations with them guided visualizations and then we'd sit and talk and I don't know why I don't know where that came from I intuited that some of the things that people were saying some of the conversations that we were having were going to a place that I would not be able to support and I didn't I felt that was dangerous for them dangerous for me dangerous for them because I could open up something and not be able to contain it for them and I don't know why I knew that maybe because I'd I'd started reading things like the road less traveled I'd started my personal development journey which I didn't know that's really what I was doing at the time and and so I started doing little courses here there and everywhere and then somebody just said to me something about why don't you do a drama therapy course and drama therapy is basically you use well when I was studying it we used you we could use drama you could use art you could use dance or the way that I use it now is in terms of characters identifying yourself with a character and identifying pulling out the qualities of that character that you can then embody and also I have with with stories with I'm a Christian so like the Bible with songs I'm very much about using taking a story and using the different characters as different aspects of ourselves so if so for instance if you take Moses the story of Moses and freeing the slaves of Egypt and that's that is freeing that part of us that we've enslaved and Pharaoh is the part of us that won't allow us to do and, and Moses is the, is the part of us that is trying to lead us out 
of lead us out of Egypt and take us into the promised land. And I remember one point that I was doing some sort of study and we were studying the um, story of Moses and thinking that, I don't understand. He led them out of the promised land and then he didn't get a chance to see it because he was told by God that he wasn't going to see the promised land and he didn't get sick. But now kind of having evolved through journeys of my own, I understand how you have to die. A character has to die to itself to be able to see the fruits of its labor. So who I was yesterday cannot enjoy who I am today because who I was yesterday has to die in order for who I am today to bloom and forge forward. So that's how I use drama therapy. People from the drama therapy society might be listening and thinking, what the hell is this woman talking about? But that's what, that's how it has evolved for me. And then a few years later, I did a, a master's in business administration because I, when I finished my drama therapy course, I did some workshops for women who were in, in danger of going to hospital due to their mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And I did confidence building workshops with them using my drama therapy skills and at the same time I got a job in another drop-in centre and there very quickly invited to there were two deputy manager roles and I was invited to apply for one of them and I did and so I went more into management and I had to let the women's therapy centre work go because it was just too much for me and a few years later I was looking for some sort of management training and it was the the finance manager at this organization said, why don't you just do an MBA? So when I finished my MBA, I thought, right, drama therapy, MBA, put them together. And I remember going to a place called Arts in Business and they connected me with companies, small companies that were doing that using drama in corporate settings. And I didn't know at the time that was probably executive coaching. <laughs> there wasn't a term for it. And I basically didn't see it through because I had finished my, my MBA. I hadn't worked for that last year. I had student loans to pay and all that kind of stuff. And so I took a, a job which I thought, OK, I'll do that. And in a part time, I'll try and develop the other thing. And, and I did that twice, twice between then and 10 years ago. And it didn't work because you just get sucked into whatever it is that you're doing. But I didn't realise actually at that time, that I think that was where I was beginning my midlife journey because the, the journey was for me about reconnecting with who I, I truly am and f trying to figure out how that fit in this world that I lived in and connected to that. I'm not sure if you, you had a chance to have a look at the story that I sent you, but I grew up, like I said, I grew up here, Nigerian parents. So the story is the lost language of home and it's told from an uh, omnipresent perspective. But it's talking to the child of first pa parents who are immigrants and who have who have found themselves in a country and not necessarily intending to, to live there, but they stay and the impact that has on the, their relationship, that, the way the child sees itself, because that's the primary, is that the child initially sees itself as being a part of them because that's their world. And then the child goes out into the world and sees a different perspective that they don't quite fit into. And, and in order to survive, will choose the outside world so that the, the parents become the strange ones and the outside world becomes more normal and what that does to that child and the whole idea of it's a short story and it, it ends up with 
the child eventually integrating both what they consider hopefully to be the best of both so that they can find a personhood of them their own. I think it's interesting because the way it's written, it's very much about your Nigerian culture and combining your culture here in the UK. But I also even think just hearing you describe it, how much that's just such a universal story of parenthood where you try to teach your children about you or about what you believe in. And then they grow up and go off and do their own thing. And you hope as a parent or as a family that they take the best of both. But I, it really, with the way that you used language in it as, you know, symbolic of the two different countries or not even symbolic, what the two different countries, how they speak, the, their words, it, it mm. just drove home to me how much more so it is when you're losing your own language and you're losing so much of your culture. Mm. It's not really a question. I just, that was something yeah. that really moved me about yeah. it. Thank you. Thank you. And now, because I wrote that, gosh, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, but now when I think about it, I don't have children, but when I think about it in from the perspective of my parents, for instance, it must have been so difficult for them trying to keep hold of their child and not necessarily um, keep hold of the tradition. Although a lot of immigrants will, families for, who have migrated will want to hold on to the traditions, especially if the country that they're going into is not offering something different or better so they want to try and hold on to what they know and that now looking back I can see how difficult that would have been for my parents for instance to negotiate and watch their children trying to make uh, their way in the world without completely rejecting the parents or rejecting the parents way and when I wrote that story I had no idea what it was that I was really trying to say. I think I wrote the first draft of it in an hour. One afternoon, I had to do something for my course and I just wrote um, 500 words. And that just came out of nowhere. But looking back on it and looking back on that time, my late 30s going into my 40s, I think was the beginning of this journey and what was my midlife journey and my journey to find my true self which is what I was saying about the, the the periods of trying to change careers and going to businesses and and then taking a job for the financial aspect and losing that dream but I think that that all of that was part and parcel of me starting this journey of of trying to reconnect with who I truly was by the time I had written that I think both my parents had passed away by then so it was even more there was nothing there that was holding me in a way and it was definitely a journey that I was making my way through what I recognized last year when there was the issues with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matters and what that brought up for me was a recognition that Throughout my adult life, I had, because I did my drama therapy course, because I was somebody who was very much into self-improvement and self-awareness, I I'd had counselling, I had coaching, on and off over the years. But one of the things that I didn't ever, it never occurred to me to even address the fact that 
I was a child of Nigerian or a woman of Nigerian parents living mm-hmm. in a country that wasn't Nigeria. And what the what I it never occurred to me to think about the impact that was having on my adult experience, the impacts that may have had as uh, on me as a child as well. And what the events of last year, what that has done is it's made that dialogue a lot more open. So we are able to have those conversations. And in, in being able to have those conversations, it now feels, certainly for me, that I can say what I think, say what I feel without feeling like I have to take care of the person that I'm talking to, which was something that was a real issue through my adulthood. Just trying to, to be who I was and be okay with who I was which would include expressing how something may impact me. But a lot of the time, looking back, I recognise that in expressing that, I was almost trying to let the other person off the hook um, and trying to let them not feel like there was something wrong with them or it just felt like I was taking care of the other person when I needed to be taking care of myself. And that was about, and that for me is knowing who I am and being okay with who I am and being confident enough to say that who I am is deserving of the respect of being heard. I think it's interesting that you said that something like, as traumatic as George Floyd is what it takes for us to start talking. And I think one of the really interesting things that came out for me was I always have asked the question, like, how can I be better? Like my question to you might be, how would you prefer to be addressed? Or how can I be a better person? How can I be less? And one of the things that really came to light for me was, yes, I'm asking this from a genuine place and I want to be a better person all around. I want to have the conversations, but it really is up to me to find, I I shouldn't rely on you to tell me, listen, white woman, here's what you should be doing to make it better. I need to do my own research and then we can have the conversation, which I think is really, yeah, that's Mm. something that brought home for me. But I do think it's really interesting that something so dramatic and very traumatic, I think all around was a conversation starter and that it led you somewhere, somebody who to me seems so strong already in your own awareness, yet another step into where you're going in your own, like you said, your own journey. Yeah. And I think that what you you said, you described it as being a conversation starter. I actually think that the conversation had started. What happened was people started to listen. Yes, that is true. Than the, because people have been... That conversation had been had. Yes, that people had been speaking and speaking and it wasn't being heard. And that what happened last year was people stopped because we had no choice. There was nowhere for anyone to go and people had to stop and listen. And once it's when you listen as a coach, really, my job is to listen to what mm-hmm. people have got to say and to be present and to be in be whether it's in front of a um a screen via zoom or face to face but be there and be present and listen to what they that person is saying and the questions that i ask in response 
to what that person says. Mm-hmm. It's not that I sit two hours before the coaching session and say, I'm seeing Kristen today. So these are the questions I'm going to ask because I don't know which Kristen is going to be in front of me. But what was I think what was happening was that people would would raise something that and if it had the slightest whiff of the R word, the race word coming up, the shutters would come down. People would switch off and stop listening. And it could be on both sides trying to make the other one side trying to make the other side better. One side feeling, oh, my God, this person thinks I'm I'm. I'm a racist or thinks that if I say this person's going to think I'm a racist and the other person is okay so I need to figure out how I'm going to say this so that other person doesn't feel like feel like right. I, I think that they're a racist and so the, the conversation wasn't being had everybody was so in their heads and worried about what the other person was thinking that there was no room for um, open dialogue and the, the main thing for me, because the, the issue of not, not addressing that in counselling or in therapy wasn't such a big one for me in that I think that I'm self-aware enough and I'm curious enough that if there was something that was really in my face, I would bring it up in my coaching or in my therapy. I would have brought it up over the years. The main thing for me was that was the fact that I probably kept quiet when I could have said more and that was that was the bit for me that I felt that I could I could have said more sometimes but in order to keep the peace or not have to educate people or whatever not be in that role I I kept quiet whereas now I think what happens is that I'm less reticent about bringing it up in a in a conversation it's not even just about race anything that's about challenging another person I don't bring them it as a way of making the other person feel bad and that's the thing that I think is the that's the lesson that we all have to learn that it's about being kind enough to allow that person the person that you're talking to make a mistake and being kind enough to correct that mistake without leaving that person feeling ashamed, embarrassed, or feeling like they are less than. Because we're talking about race now. I'm sure there are things that I could say in other areas that I could potentially offend people. And that would be unintentional. But I would like if I did say something that was going to offend or had offended somebody or potentially that that somebody either takes me to one side and explains to me why they they felt that was offensive and with and I can take that without having to justify why I said what I had to say it was just by like oh right okay oops sorry that wasn't my intention I understand now and I'm happy to move on with a different mindset. In order for us to be there, we need to have that confidence within ourselves about what our intentions are and and where it's coming from, where where whatever we're saying is coming from. And also, we have to be brave enough to accept if the person who is receiving it is angry and accept that and hear it and let it and find some sort of resolution that we can move forward with it because if we keep running scared nobody's going to hear anybody and we're just going to find ourselves in a few years time in the same situation yeah and I think that's for me to say start a conversation like you said that's not true the conversation's been going on for so long but I do think on both sides or on many sides it has gotten now where I at least for myself and I can really only speak for myself whereas I know I'm coming from 
a genuine place. And if, if it's not a place of anger and if it is a true place of wanting understanding, I have found that I've been met with what you said. Sometimes somebody's angry. Sometimes it's just, hey, I really wish you would have said this a different, you know, whatever that is. But as long as we're willing to have the conversation, it usually goes a lot better than just not listening, just not talking and admitting there's a problem is the first step of anything really. And I guess bringing it back to what you're doing now and age and wisdom and women, and there's so many different things. I feel like sometimes, you know, people don't like that. I say, oh, I run a theater company or I have a podcast for that focuses on women's stories or women's writers. And it's, I'm sorry, that makes you angry. (laughs) I'm not so shy about saying that anymore. And I think some of that comes with age and comes with the wisdom of age to say, I'm not going to be shy about what I believe or what needs to be said. Yeah. 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 And and, uh, do you get that? Is that is it both men and women, or is it mainly men that you get that kind of response from? Mainly men. Mainly when I have something where I ask for, say, like female identifying right. playwrights, and male playwrights come forward and say, "Why can't you accept all plays?" I like all plays. I'm just not saying enough plays by women produced. So I'm asking to produce mm. plays by women. That is my particular thing at the moment. Right. When it's all even, and I see that as many plays by women and four stories about women are being produced, I'll produce anything, bring it on. But at the moment, we know that there's this imbalance. We know there's racial imbalance. We know there's gender imbalance and we know there's ageism. Yeah. To me, until we can say that it's all even, it makes sense to have a podcast talking to women who've changed their lives after 35 or to produce that play or whatever it is. Yes, yes. And to, to answer your question, I think that that is some, a confidence that comes with age, I think. And, and again, this I know I keep saying it, but I think that it's so important to know who you are and be okay with who you are. Because if you do a, a poll of people in their early 40s, especially women in their early 40s, and say, what, what, what does being 40 mean to you? One of the top answers you will get is, I'm free to be who I am. I don't know mm-hmm. what people think. And, th- and I think that what I have observed is that, yes, people have come to that awareness that it doesn't matter what other people think, but they haven't got to that bit where they really feel it because the people that say that, have continue on with the conversation and you'll realize that yeah actually you do care a lot what people think because you are not yet comfortable in that skin of that actually what people what other people think doesn't really matter and should not impact unless what you're going to do is going to impact them but actually we do there comes a point in as you follow through with that on that part of the journey that you literally do not you're or not it's not that you don't care but you are less concerned if it's about what other people think especially if it's not adding value 
in any sort of way or it's not congruent with your intentions your goals and it, you're you are well within your rights to create a, a theatre company that encourages and allows women to to do what they do really well and there's no one that that has to say that you have to work with with people who are young or people that are old or people who are white people who are black if you decide that's what you want to do and that is feels right for you then there comes a point in your life that you will just own it and go with it and it, it's all part of your values and and to say otherwise is actually going against who you are it's going against your values and that therein lies unhappiness I I feel yeah and I definitely think you're speaking my language because I think I am to the point for me personally and I'm sure a lot of people listening will have the same feeling Theoretically, I know that I'm like, you can't, t- I am confident enough in myself, but I don't really care that much. I've learned to give up a lot of worrying about what people think, but there is still somewhere inside of me yeah. that kind of, oh, and I'm, I hate to say I'm looking forward to that age, but I do think that you see it more and more that, you know, okay, I've stopped caring a little bit. Um, yeah, now I care a little bit less and now I'm owning it. Which I wanted to ask you because I know that you had the career moment where somebody said you were unemployable. And that's where I think some of this of your own experience came to this, like, I don't care anymore and I'm going to do my thing. And the new 50 came about. And so tell me a little bit about that. It's so funny when you talk about that because that feels so long ago and so another person ago and it just at the at the time I was right in the throes of of not quite being clear about what it was that I wanted to do moving on moving into my 50s and um, my contract that I had been working at as a project manager had come to an end and I didn't want to do that kind of work anymore so I wasn't really I wasn't I wasn't really looking for work, but I I needed to, but I didn't know what it was that I wanted to do. And this was actually at the job centre and they, no, it wasn't the job centre. It was, it was, it was like a, an advisory. I think they thought that they were coaches, but they were, they were just <laughs> basically trying to get you to get into work. Okay. And, I was like, they sound like um, mean people. <laughs> It's these horrible people, these horrible people, they weren't nice to me. And it was this younger woman, I think she was trying to get me to do a, I had just done, I think I'd just done my coaching course. And she was trying to get me to do a childcare course. And I was like, I don't want to do childcare. I've just done a coaching course. And and I was trying to get myself into, into, a, into a place where I was starting to, to, I, I had, to set up my business. So I just finished the course and I was doing a lot of voluntary coaching to get hours and get experience while at the same time trying to figure out how to get this coaching business started. And she basically was trying to, I don't know, it was just this one conversation where she was trying to get me to go into do a childcare course. And, and I was like, I don't want to do a childcare course. And she was like, you do realise that you're unemployable now because, you're, you're, because of your age. I just looked at her and I, I remember I just looked at her and I didn't say anything 
I think the only thing I said was I'm not doing a childcare course because it was going to take me another <laughs> couple of years, and then after, and then I'm, I'm like, I'm going to take me two years to do the childcare course, and I'll still be in this position in two years' time. I don't think so. So she let me go. I don't think she realised she could think of anything more to say. And I remember at the time feeling really small. And what were you like, forty-seven or forty? Forty-nine, I think. When I, yeah. I was about 49 when that happened. And I remember coming away from that feeling really small. And and it was one of those things which, um, and this for the listeners, is that when somebody comes to you with, with passion, with intent, with a clear idea of what they are looking to do, go with it. Just go with it. Because it, it was less what she said and more that, she had just used that to burst my bubble and my enthusiasm and the and it didn't last very long i'm i'm very good at bouncing back from things and so it didn't last very long i remember having i spoke to somebody and and i'm feeling a little bit low i think a couple of days later i had just i i because i knew intellect i knew intellectually and deep down inside of me i knew that she was talking absolute nonsense because that yeah. that isn't a thing that doesn't make any sense it didn't make any sense and and but that was at the back of my mind it sat at the back of my mind and i let it go i let it go and i continued on doing and i was doing my career coaching and then a few years later it was a few years later that as i was coaching people who were around that kind of midlife sort of 40s going into their 50s i was noticing that that people were were struggling a little bit with especially if they just lost their job and then they were moving into something else there was a real struggle in terms of that transition be- because my generation i think was the last in that you could i think i said this before that you could you were supposed to be guaranteed a job for life you went into a job at whatever age 16 or 18 and you were guaranteed and for a lot of people having to change careers came as as quite a bit of a shock whereas I'd been doing it most of my my adult life so that was not something that was unusual for me but but I, I could see how people were finding that it was rocking them. It was rocking their world. It was rocking their sense of who they were. And so when I decided to go and do some international certification around my coaching and I was doing certification for, to facilitate workshops and things, I just thought I moved through that, that, that period and just thought... <laughs> that I just needed to support people at that stage. And it, because it wasn't just people I was coaching, it was family and friends who were of, a, of the same age and they were having the same kind of dilemmas where they, they were feeling like, I don't want to be doing this for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. We're, being, we're having to work longer, so I have to be thinking more about what it is I'm going to be doing moving on into later life and I just wanted to be in a position to support people to connect with what that really was because again a lot of the people that I was working with and I was talking with were had grown up in with a kind of mindset of this is who you are and this is who you'll be until you retire and then after that you can be whatever you like and then you die um 
And I think that a lot of these people were coming to a point in their lives where they were thinking, actually, no, that doesn't define me, but I'm not sure what does. I don't, I'm not sure who I am outside of that anymore. And so I just felt that it was really important to, to support people through that transition. And when I started, it was very much around career and what you wanted to do with your life for the rest of your life. And as time has gone by, it's evolved more into into really reclaiming who you are and honouring who you are and then making a decision based on who you truly are, not on who you think you you should be. Because what I found with a lot of people that would come to me is that they would come to me about one thing and we'd end up working on something completely different. Yes. And the outcome would be the, so it would be, for instance, somebody came to me and said she was, she wanted to leave her job. She couldn't stand her job. She hated her job. And, but she had got to a point where she wanted to stay because she was, getting closer to her retirement and she wanted to just stay and so why don't we look at how we can make it so you feel okay enough to to stay in the job and until it was only for another couple of years and I think it was first second session that it had nothing to do with her job had absolutely nothing to do with her job and it was more about where she lived and within six months she had sold up where she was living and bought somewhere else and she was living she was much happier and that is just an example that people come and they say oh this is the issue and then we talk for (laughs) maybe usually one or two sessions and then just like yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, yeah, (laughs) and and they recognize it themselves I I don't even have to tell them they recognize it themselves that all right okay this is not that's why it's not working because that's not what I'm that's not what I want we do have this self-awareness but it's not always on the surface so it's really easy to say Mm. I'm unhappy in my job it's all about my job It could be about your relationship or it could be about where you're living or it could just be some deep-seated thing inside of yourself. I remember when I moved to London, I felt really guilty reading because my partner at the time was working and I was doing more of a freelance thing and I wasn't working all the time. And I'd never read and I love reading, but it was a guilt thing. And it took a lot of my own sort of, why am I not reading anymore? Oh, wait a minute. I feel too guilty to sit down and read a book. And something as simple as that could be mm. the reason that you're so unhappy. Yes. And but and it sometimes it just takes someone yes. saying to you, tell me about that. And then you start talking and you go, oh, of course, that is a huge yes. thing in my life that I've given up, whatever that might be. I also wanted to yes. talk about, I know one of the things with your coaching is, I want to make sure I'm saying it right. I know one of the things with your coaching is the Midlife Heroes Journey and the Midlife Heroes Journey workbook. And that oh, yeah. as an actor and storyteller, I personally really respond to that. But could you tell us a little bit about <laughs> the Midlife Heroes Journey? Gosh, yeah, the Midlife Heroes Journey, I... I, I it came about somebody, I can't remember, a couple of years ago, no, about 
three or four years ago now, somebody was um, talking about the hero's journey. And I've always liked the idea of the hero's journey, that, that journey that you depart um, and you leave your ordinary world and then you go into this world of strangeness and then you have these challenges and these guides and pe- and friends that go along with you and then you you vanquish whatever it is that you're supposed to be vanquishing and you end up with a reward and you come back home into your home with that reward and it was it was a, a theme that we worked a lot with on we, it wasn't we didn't call it the hero's journey but now looking back on my drama therapy course we we did a lot of that kind of hero's journey thematic work. And and people, I just remember that when I would tell people about that I worked with, with midlife, you would get that whole midlife crisis. And, and I would find it a bit annoying, especially with guys where they would say, oh, you're working with the midlife crisis. People people who are, who are having a midlife crisis. And I'm like, no, it's not about a crisis. I'm not working with people who are in, in crisis. And and I would hear other definitions of midlife, like the reinvention, the transition, all those others. And it wasn't until somebody talked again about the hero's journey that I thought, actually, yeah, that is what it is. It is. And I have to base it on my experience, but it is a hero's journey and when you think of someone like Luke Skywalker he goes on that hero's journey comes mm-hmm. back and each of the, the Star Wars movies is a, a mini hero's journey and and I think that midlife is that hero's journey now the hero's journey you go and that the hero has these challenges trials tribulations and there is a prize there is a there is a reward that that hero brings back and uh, the reward is usually in some sort of personal growth and that what makes it a hero's journey is that they're able to then apply it in their back in their ordinary world so the ordinary world may not have changed but the hero has changed and has changed sufficiently that they can bring it back into their ordinary world and use it to grow that ordinary world and I feel that's what midlife is, is that we go through this and especially women and I work with men as well and I think that men have physical physical changes that aren't really talked about but mm-hmm. I was as a woman I will speak about women and we go through these physical changes in our body shape in our with chemically with through menopause our period stop all those kinds of things that then end up having impact and impact on our emotions and if we are if we have the right support can be the fire through which the phoenix then rises and what we come out with the rewards that we end up with is that strong sense of who we are and it's that strong sense of who we are that we then take back into our ordinary world and enable that to use that to enrich the people that are around us and that's and it's through that understanding of who we truly are what where our power lies within us that fuels the passion that enables us to to make a change whether it's in our family in our workplace in our local community or in the world at large but that is the prize that we come back with and so that's where the whole idea of the midlife hero's journey came for me 
Some people say that it's a very like male dominated theme, but I don't think so. I think we all have these kind of heroes journeys. And I feel like sometimes going with this podcast, I'll talk to somebody and I have a mini heroes journey every time because I come out of talking to somebody with this new enlightened version of myself. That sounds so <laughs> hokey. Oh, that sounds so hokey. But I spoke with somebody the other week um, who was talking about she's just been through menopause and she's supporting other women in menopause and she's 54. And she was like, I've got nearly half of my life left. And I started thinking about my own life. And if I live to be as old as my grandmother lived, I still have well over half my life to live. And you just think, that right. tiny, rev- I mean, that, I left that call thinking about that. And I was a completely different person than I went on that call. Because like you said, what do I want to do for the rest mm. of my life? And why would I stay unhappy in certain yeah. things? And yeah, I, I love the idea of the hero's journey for a midlife and any time <laughs> in life, really, not just midlife, but you know, that you can be having these yeah. mini journeys. Yes. Exactly. Because I think our life is uh, like there, there is an overall journey that we don't we probably don't know the, the point of until the day that we die. But within that, there are there, there's the school journey, the being a child journey, the dependence on your parents journey. There's the uh, stepping out into the world journey. There's the career journey. There's the relationship journey. There's the family journey. There's the spiritual journey or spiritual growth journey that there's a whole load of mini journeys within even within the midlife heroes journey there are many (laughs) heroes journeys I went through a a period where I didn't even know that I was going through it but there was just low level anxiety and that was and I'm sure that if I had known that what that was I guess I could have gone and got medication for it or something or done something about it I probably wouldn't have used taken medication for it but if I had known what it was then I would be able to get the support that I needed for it but there, there was that little journey that I was experiencing through midlife but the thing with any hero's journey is that the, the hardest bit is the first bit, that bit of stepping out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And that is the bit that is the most, where the hero is the most vulnerable because, and I was describing about previously about going out, deciding that I'm going to have run my own business and then taking a job. And that was me going, stepping out of that kind of ordinary, ordinary world, out of my comfort zone going, oops, no, I don't like that, coming back. And that, can happen a lot and that happens a lot in our adulthood as well mm-hmm. and what had then happened in midlife is that we get to midlife and we say actually no I'm not I'm, I'm going to try something different this time I'm going to give it a go this time and I think that certainly what worked for me was once I had the support to do it then I was better equipped to do to go forward those other times that I had tried to tried along that route I didn't really have the support and I didn't really know where to go for the support. And I think that that, which is a a key kind of archetypal character on the hero's journey is that role of the guide, the mentor who Mm -hmm. walks with you, somebody who's gone a little bit away of the ahead of the way and that can hold your hand and walk you through the next stage. And that I think is that I think is really important on the on the hero's journey. Yes, the resisting the call and then finally having the the mentor that provides the right support. Yeah. 
Did you bring a quote today? Yes, I have got a quote today. And it's it's a quote by George Bernard Shaw. And it's, he says, I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle for me. It is a sort of splendid torch, which I've got hold of for the moment. And I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) That I'm going to print that out and put it on my wall because that is said by somebody who clearly is a better writer than me, or at least more famous for it. but saying exactly how I would like to live my life. I think I can say that it's how I've always aspired to live my life. I remember I remember when I was in theatre and, and somebody had said to me something about they were basically saying that my that I as a black actor I had a responsibility to other black actors and and I I think it was in the context of be a role model for other black actors and whatever and I remember my response to them and I was in my 20s and I remember my response to them was that actually no that's not how I see my life I see my life as doing the best I can so that I make it easier for the people that are coming after me in the same way that my parents did the best they could so that they could it was easier for me to be able to do what I did and when I I, when I was working as a project manager I was working in local authorities and I always however nice or not the the women were that were in very senior positions I always had so much respect for them because because they had paved the way for me to be able to do what I was doing so that has always been a thing for me that I just do my utmost and yeah just live my best and to the best of my ability so that it's easier for the people who come after me and the generations who come after me and so going back to what we were saying earlier about the the whole events the events of last year the next generation handling those things differently and hopefully in a more healthy way than we have. And But we had to go through what we did in order for them to be able to, to see a different way. And we can have those dialogues with the next generation. And hopefully they are able to do things differently in the same way that I'm deep steep deeply steeped in my midlife. And I've but I my experiences can pave the way so that people that are coming into midlife don't experience it in the same way that I did because my mum died before I even started thinking I was 44 when my mum died Mm -hmm. and at 44 I wasn't even thinking about midlife whereas now what I'm trying to do is and a lot more people are there a lot of people talking about it now talking about menopause talking about midlife so that people coming after me can say okay there was somebody there's somewhere that I can go and not have to to cut the cut down the trees and the, the shrubs and everything in the forest <laughs> to make a path you know and that's and so that's why that that quote just means it speaks to who I am and what my life is about really so with your own experience like you said deeply into mid- midlife and having had the experience and also working with people that are going through that experience if you could kind of sum up 
just everything we've talked about. No, it's just a small task. Some of what we've talked about. And as a coach, what would you want people that maybe are finding some sort of challenges to walk away from this conversation with? First of all, it will pass. But in the meantime, don't don't dismiss how you're feeling. Whatever it is that is creating the challenge for you, be clear about what it is that you want. Be clear about what the outcome is for you. And if you can't, if you don't have that clarity, you know, go to your values, go to go to your values and see what might not be working in your current situation and check, check that against your values. And if it might be that your values have changed or that situation needs to change. Also, be really clear about where you are. That's the big thing. Be really clear about where you are, because if you can be clear about where you are, then the clarity about where you need to be can evolve. But if you're in denial about where you are, then it's going to make things a lot more difficult. And that's all I can think of to say right now off the top of my head. I'm (laughs) taking notes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. (laughs) Good. Yeah, it really is about accepting who you are. And I, I wish I'd brought it. I've got like this kind of acronym of breathe, which is about be who you are, reflect and restore. Use it as a time for restoration. That's the other thing. Restoration, regeneration, so that you can come out of it with a new energy. Like I said, accept where you are and affirm who you are. Because that's the other thing I forgot. I haven't said that at all. Is this thing about about people assuming that midlife is a bad thing and that it's that we need fixing when we get to midlife it's so if there was one thing if there was one thing I had to say is just remember that you are magnificent and start from that point you don't need fixing you are magnificent and if you can tell yourself that every day that I am magnificent. Look at yourself in the mirror and say, you are magnificent. And all those little voices and all those triggers and things will come up and then you deal with them. Get yourself a coach, get somebody to support you and deal with them. But start from the point of you are magnificent. Funny enough, I was thinking, I just need to re- like record that and have it played for me every day. But I am recording it so I can. <laughs> I'm just going to play your voice saying you are magnificent. Listening to this podcast right now, before you switch off, say three times, I am magnificent. I am magnificent. I am magnificent. Exactly. And and you're being more polite now, but when we're off, I want you to shout it <laughs> that I am magnificent because we all are. And that's the place that we start. And if we can start from that, a point of magnificence, then can you imagine what we can bloom into? I have nothing else I can say other than thank you so much for that. Thank you for joining me today. And all of the listeners, I hope you have listened to the very end so that, and that you are going to turn off this podcast and shout to yourself, I am magnificent. Thank you, Tywo. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. I hope you found Tywo's message as inspiring as I did. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this is the season finale. We will be back on September 7th. That's the 7th of September, 2021. I can't wait to share more stories of amazing women who have changed their lives and or careers after the age of 35 with you then. 
See you in September. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.